Hello, it's George and Steve coming back at you with another one of our, our lovely podcasts. Um, I'm George. Who are you? Hi, friends. I'm Stephen. Oh, lovely. Um, today's topic, I think it's one that we should have some things to say, some questions to ask, some stories to tell. We're going to be talking about productivity in the age of social media, um, being a sort of digital nomad and trying to deal with with the many distractions that the world throws at us. Uh, and speaking of distractions, Steve, I'd like to start this podcast about productivity with a completely unrelated uh, rant slash anecdote about something that occurred to me yesterday. Sure, let's riff on that. For, for context for people who are listening, I'm still in LA. Uh, George is back in the home country and we probably haven't spoken properly since the last podcast. This is kind of our way of having a chat now so George, give me give me some dispatches from the home counties what's what's happening what's news well, i mean we put this podcast together to essentially keep our friendship alive didn't we so sure it's it's burning <laughs> uh so yesterday steve i went to what i would describe as a lovely classical music concert um wow. oh, okay. I, I do often i was in oxford uh, with my girlfriend, and they put on a lovely classical music performance of some of the stuff Mozart rustled up at the Sheldonian Theatre. It's a really nice spot. Um, it was a lovely event. I've been to a couple there before. Um, the seating in that place is not great, I have to say. It, it sort of lulls you into wanting to fall asleep. And and so does classical music. So the whole time I'm there, I'm, I'm sort of wrestling with the fear of falling asleep publicly. Yeah, um, nice, wa- nice warm theatre. Just exactly. sort of and, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, music without lyrics. So obviously I'm going to be desperate to fall asleep. But, well, first of all, it turns out that falling asleep at these things, I didn't fall asleep last night, by the way, but it seems to be pretty much par for the course. I would say oh, of, yeah. of the 500 people there, 100 of them were asleep. Um, and a number of them did not come back after the intermission. They just saw that as their chance to skip skip town. Um, but the thing, I, I tell you what, the thing that really got to me, I'm not in any way a classical music sort of snob or aficionado. I likes what I likes kind of thing. I like film scores. I know a few few bits and pieces, but I don't profess to have any knowledge about it. But what really, really got to me to the point where I was kind of squirming in my seat is that is that sort of knowing we're all in it together chuckle that ripples through a kind of, uh, I suppose, like slightly upper middle class classical music audience. And it, it boils my blood. It, it's the reason I also don't really like going to the theatre. It's that attitude of, oh, oh, we're all here and we all get the jokes or we all get, <laughs> we all get what's going on. So last night what happened was there were these two, I guess, symphonies i suppose like long pieces broken up they they're playing they're playing the hits they're, they're knocking out it's like it's like a now 45 of classical music right they're knocking out all the big mozart pieces sure so they do these two quite long pieces maybe maybe an hour's worth and then there was an intermission and first of all they had these two lead i guess lead violins or the soloists and it's like a, a very handsome guy and a very like lovely looking girl they're kind of they stand out from everyone else who, who are all sort of dressed in I guess like black tie white tie and um they come out and they they get a huge standing ovation and this is something that kind of winds me up with all live music really is they get their standing ovation they walk off the people keep clapping so they come back on it's like they already knew they were going to come back on for the encore so it's like 
you have to go through this sort of like falseness of them going off. Oh, we came back on. It's because everyone's still clapping. If you stop clapping, they wouldn't come back on. So it's sort of this weird chicken and egg thing. But while the soloists were waiting for the conductor to come back in the kind of intermission, he starts like, I don't know, like mugging for the audience a bit. So he started playing like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star on the violin. And everyone, he did it. And it was obviously like a very impressive performance of it, but he's doing it as a bit of an arch joke. And everyone in the crowd's going, ah, ah. Oh, God. what what's funny about that? I don't understand what's so intelligent or funny about that. You know he's really good at the violin because he's in an orchestra, and it's Twinkle Twinkle Little Star when you thought you'd be hearing Mozart. That, if that's the extent of it, but it's that. Oh, it's know, those it environments where me. it's those environments where I d- and I don't know why it does tend to be a sort of upper middle class environment. I'm thinking, yeah, the concert theatre, a book reading, where sort of anything passes for humor that's got a mild sense of levity to it so even just someone someone at a book reading making the most sort of passing you know reference to a a brexit or a trump or a hot political issue they they do tiny little rib and everyone has to really chuckle like it was a great or or, yeah he does you know the twinkle twinkle little star did something mildly yeah and it happens it will also be i I think it i don't even think it's necessarily just in that class bracket as well because it will happen at a foot like a football match or there'll be some you know hilarious moment with the linesman and everyone's going oh we're all here in the crowd and only we can get this (laughs) joke or wimbledon which maybe does fall back into that class bracket but there'll be you know or andy murray will let the ball boy hit the ball once and everyone laughs and it's just so delightful yeah yeah it's through me like a knife Um, yeah that'll be it'll be like andy murray um yeah andy murray throws something back to the ball boy or chucks his like you know something (laughs) Chuck something in his pocket to him, and it's like, oh, what a great moment that oh, was! He's, yeah, he's a comedian. Um, yeah, and it's, it's this—it's the kind of falseness of it as well, because I imagine that violinist guy has done that little hilarious joke of "Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star" three million times, and he's acting as if it's this incredibly impromptu moment of creativity, and it's just very exhausting. Um, and you think the first time he did that, he came off stage, and the other. <laughs> The other musicians went, did you, did, I can't believe you just did that Twinkle Twinkle Little Star thing. And he knew he knew he was going to do it the whole time. And he went, oh yeah, it went down quite well, though, didn't it? And they went, oh, you should do that every time. Oh, do you, do you think, oh no, I couldn't. Do you reckon? But then I was looking at the rest of the orchestra, like the lower profile, like the, I don't know, the big, the old guy on the kettle drum and the fella next to him on the triangle sort of talking to each other like, what is he doing now? Here we go again. <laughs> and it's like, the lead guy is just milking in the, the applause he gets from this great bit of mugging off to the crowd. It it boiled my blood, Steve. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm still seething from it almost exactly 24 hours later. I mean, and and what what other reason should you go to a classical music concert if not to get righteous, <laughs> fiery indignation? Um, no, what a lot. I mean, I'm I'm just glad we've got classical music news coming Crowbar, out. Crowbar some <laughs> classical in. Why not? Um, you know, Oxford's very much keeping that keeping that fire alive. Um, I'm, Oxford, it always seems that stuff is happening. But yeah, I went to a few. I I kind of I don't know. I have mixed feelings about going to them because I do feel 
I feel the same thing as you were. Well, it's my fault, right? If you go to one of those events, you are putting yourself in the line of fire of the sort of people who are going to be giggling at that. Kind yeah, of thing. I, I think the theatre for me nearly is like, it, it, unless I'm seeing, maybe I'm seeing like a, a Shakespeare or something kind of timeless, but but Even lots worse. of things. And lots worse. of things. People laughing at Shakespearean jokes, inexcusably <laughs> awful. I see, yeah, but Shakespeare line could be really witty. Or it yeah, be... a couple of them, but the people who go, ha, <laughs> this like really obscure, you know. Oh, I don't, yeah. And what I find at the theatre the most is something that's not, in, a, in even a sombre play, one line that's, that's mildly, it's not even funny, really. It's someone just saying something that sounds like it should be funny. Like, oh, oh, Henry, you haven't taken out the dishes for six months. And then everyone will laugh at it. And it's like, yeah. that's not that's not a joke. Come on. Yeah, like, yeah. I, um, I think it, what it boils down to is I just sort of despise being in a part, being a part of an audience. I think it really detracts from almost anything, really. We we go to the cinema a lot. You know I'm much happier when it's, it's just you and I in the cinema alone. Um, comedy, stand-up, I hate. I hate being at stand-up events almost exclusively. <laughs> Rock concerts, I hate. It's just it's that we're all in it together and we all get it a bit more than the people who aren't here. No, you don't. It's but you're more, of a, you're more of a live music man than I am, I'd say. Uh, yeah. I feel like I try and tick off each of the bands I like. I like to see them live once, but I'm kind of wrestling against the, the awfulness of the people around me. Right, got yeah. I can't imagine I'm a picnic to be around either, but I'm not. I'm not tittering <laughs> at the inside jokes. Lugubrious old George tutting away in about in the mosh pit. <laughs> um, Bang to rights. Should we? Uh, should we get back on track, Steve? Yeah, let's get back on track. Um, I think one lesson we've got is don't bother going to any events because you'll only be the audience is awful. Well, it certainly doesn't help with productivity, does it? That was, that was <laughs> two hours down the drain. I could have been. <laughs> crafting some work from um the cinema is my favorite i don't mind that but i do i do get annoyed with people in the cinema making noise but yeah anyway productivity <laughs> what's that all about eh um being productive in the everyday world um george do you struggle with being a productive man do you feel like you're a, a prolific man do you take steps to optimize your life is it something you think and worry about in our age of social media and distraction do you find it harder than ever to be productive it's certainly it's certainly a harder thing now i think than it would have been maybe 10 years ago I, it would have been easier even when i was doing my undergraduate degree it, it was easier to be productive then i think because there weren't as many distractions uh, i think you keep checking your phone while we're talking about this so you know it's it's like it's a no- difficult just get my notes just getting my notes up boy um it it's difficult so i guess you know i'm sure if you've listened to our podcast you know that we're both both people who work sort of remotely freelance isn't the right word but from a laptops kind of on our own schedule and have to make sure we get our work done without kind of external supervision and that in of itself poses lots of challenges um but i think the i think the thing i i find the the difficulty of it is and it's again, probably true for both of us, is that as I've gotten older, I've made a very concerted effort to try and step back from sort of throwing a lot of my time away mindlessly on social media. But the work I do requires me to be on social media. I work for a um, a company that runs a language school online. So most of our marketing comes through Instagram. We now have, you know, a, nearly a six six-figure audience 
and I don't mean six people, I mean, you know, five zeros after a one. Um, so like a big audience that has a lot of interaction and you could just get sucked into a black hole of losing a lot of time. And the thing I find difficult is being efficient, productive, getting my work done. But to do so, I would normally just, you know, go cold turkey on those things, but I also have to be involved with them. And that that's something I find really difficult. And if anything would ask you for advice on, because it's something I guess you've been dealing with since you've been working. This is it's more of a recent thing for me. It's only something I've been working on for say 18 months. Yeah, I think, um, I think for me, my, yeah, my job is, involves a mix of fast paced and slow paced productivity. And so, so I do a lot of writing in my own time, uh, which is the stuff where I need clear space and no distraction for, but then I do have this constant other thing that is social media marketing where I do a lot of work to help create all of the content with Matt on our stuff for get the guy. Um, I have to come up with social media posts, come maybe go get a bunch of clips that we can use on social media, that kind of thing. Um, you know, one, so just thinking of the very, just thinking of that as a start. I mean, that we, we kind of have always, we kind of always come back to the question of what are we actually trying to do? And we actually, we've actually made the conscious decision to scale back a little of our social media, um, you know, from, from kind of the frenzy, there's a real pressure in a lot of, I guess right now you're in a you're working in a company where you're trying to market, trying to get your name out there. We're always doing the same where we're trying to make, keep up awareness, um, you know, and maybe talk about our programs and things like that. Um, but I think that you can kind of, there's a dangerous philosophy that, that some marketers now sell to other marketers that you, your, your relevance is just constantly fading if you're not omnipresent all the time on all platforms. And I think people can even just feel this personally. And if you're, you know, if you're trying to grow anything now, you pretty much have to use social media in some way. If you're trying to market anything from scratch, it's kind of like if your business or company isn't on social media, it's almost like you don't exist to some, mm. to, in some ways to some people. Um, and so, so I think everyone struggles with this, but what, you know, one thing we found is, um, you know, cause Matt, Matt also is very big on having a personal life and he has no desire. If Matt wanted to, he could be filming himself five times a day and uploading more clips. It would yeah. probably do better on something like Instagram, but we made the very conscious decision to say that, you know, to say no to a lot of things like we're not going to have Matt telegraphing his life all the time we're not going to have him under pressure to do three photos of himself a day um and so and for me what i found with if i say we're going to have to post 10 uh 10 to 15 things on social media this week well what we try and do with 80 percent now and this is help because i have someone else working with me in this now where we can divide and conquer but we actually just batch we batch as much as possible so we try and say before the week begins let's not be fighting fires all the time and be distracted constantly from our other important work. Let's try and just say, these are the 10 to 15 posts we batch and those are all going out no matter what. And they're kind of pre-scheduled. And then you have things like your mornings and stuff for actual solid, deep creative work where we can do, you know, the important stuff is like, you know, 
me and Matt have to come up with a video every week. And that's important because that's like a crafted three to five minute YouTube video that has to have several points and it has to be shot well and look well. And that's stuff we care about. And it's like, if we don't do a good job on that, that's the meat of it. Like just, just coming up with more social media posts. It's like, I think the problem we have in the modern world is that there are certain things where it's just never ending. You, you could, you could just make up more stuff to do on something like social media forever, right? It's never going to end. So you have to decide to yourself philosophically, like what's my goal here and how much almost like good enough is good enough basically. And that's one of the pieces of productivity advice I've actually found has been incredibly game changing for me. So, so even to make this relevant to anyone, like say, you know, us doing this podcast or something, right? There might be like, we've now set it in every week. We're going to sit and record a podcast. Now it's neither me or your career to do a podcast right now. We could have every reason to delay and to not do it. But you know, if we think one week, um, Oh, we're not entirely sure of a great topic this week. The worst thing you can do is be like, well, we've got to wait for a really killer topic. Yeah. what you've often got to do, you'll often find any topic will sort of work, but you kind of have to say at first, like lower your standard and say good enough is good enough. And I found that with sitting alone and trying to write a short story. Mm-hmm. It's it, the things that stifle me a lot can be just very much procrastination based and very much um, wanting it to be really great. And then I just sit on things because I think I've got to wait for that idea to be superb or for that, that idea to be great. Well, time, um, time takes care of it, right? In many ways, like either if it's just sitting down to start writing something or knocking these podcasts out, if you sort of sit and focus on the minutiae of word by word in a sentence, you won't get anywhere. If we kill ourselves thinking of a topic until it's perfect, you won't get anywhere. But if we look back in six months' time and we've recorded, you know, one a week for six months, there's suddenly tons of content. Or if you're writing, I, for me... Um, just start writing and as soon as that flow starts you it's much easier to edit something after you've started and cut away the the unnecessary fat than it is to go i'm only going to write perfect sentences from the very start yeah and it's like you know you could you could decide with something like this we you know unless everyone is scripted out exactly what's going to happen and how we're going to say it then we'll record a podcast and you know you'll you'll get about three or four out of yourself that way and then you'll give up because it'll be too hard one week and and so for me, it's always like, it's always about building the system for me. Mm-hmm. So, so the things where I notice I've truly, you know, had great years, like, like last year, like I wasn't perfect in many ways last year. There's lots of things that did fall by the wayside, but I was quite, for, for the first six months of the year, I made a commitment with a friend that we were going to deliver a short story to each other um, every two weeks. Uh, and so what we did is we'd just say these are this is our deadline and we are going to until july or june or whenever it was we said we're going to deliver a short story to each other every two weeks and then we have the monday morning where we get together we critique each other's story and we move on and i know sometimes that process it there were there were some fortnights where i just couldn't feel any less like writing a short story and you might feel a bit tapped out and you might feel like I don't have a great idea. I had a great idea last week and I don't this week, but just because we set the system up and there was this now social pressure and it was 
unfair if he was going to do one and I wasn't. Once that system was in place, it created this just immediate that like any excuses had to go out the window because it then just became okay, it's getting two days now before the deadline. We have to do a short story no matter what. And the standard yeah, yeah. went the standard went down. So it, it didn't have to be genius. It just had to be whatever we had. And so for me, if you if you have because productivity to me, just to step back, productivity to me is not just getting a load of things done. And I, I know plenty of people who are extremely busy all the time and getting a lot of things done, but they're not they're not always making great leaps maybe in the career, their career that they want, or they're not moving towards the things they really love. They're just, well, they're just quickly, I suppose there's productivity in the sense of actually producing something. And then there's just being very efficient at dealing with admin. Right. And that's, it's kind of tread like walking that tightrope between the two things. I mean, you possibly have the luxury of your career is more focused on that production of content, I suppose, at the moment, mine's probably more dealing with the admin with, I don't know, 40% of it is the production of content. And it's it's working yeah. out how to deal with those because they're slightly different approaches. But I feel like with the, with the overwhelming nature of using our phones all the time and dealing with those things, often the things that are supposed to make the admin side of stuff efficient then cancels out your ability to be creative. Yeah, well, here's my... Well, my, my take on that is... Well, first of all, you never get the luxury of just being able to be no, like, every, I know, every yeah. Um, I, I definitely don't have a luxury of just being able to sit and come up of with course. ideas. Um, I, I have lots of, uh, you know, normal annoyances of having to do smaller tasks that don't really, like, I, I divide my, I always try and assess in my week, like, how many things are truly important tasks that are going to move the needle in a way of either furthering my creative career producing output that's gonna help the company in some way and i have a bunch of other stuff that is just normal important running of the company stuff but isn't gonna it's not gonna suddenly change the company if i just did that for a year it would just mean we ticked along at neutral and then there's like so there's growth things and then there's almost just management things and uh some people separate this i've seen they call it like what do they call it creator tasks versus uh, manager versus maker. I think they call it things like that. And I think nearly everyone, even if you're not creative, you have certain things that are more like the big elephant tasks that are really going to change your whole company or business or life or whatever it is. And then you have these day-to-day things you have to get done anyway, whether it's doing your taxes or sending out emails. And for me, it's finding it's really just dividing where, where is your best time possible to do your creative, your maker work, whatever that is, is your time the first two hours in the morning when you're going to be the most productive possible, or is it in the evenings when no one's going to bother you? Whatever your time is that, that to me making like aggressively making the time for that stuff is to me, what's always enable me say the short stories no one is pressuring me to do that but i know it's important for me it's important for me as a creative person as a writer whatever to do those but absolutely no one's going to pressure me to do it so i have to aggressively figure out where where are the parts where i'm going to be able to manage to manage to fit that in and um yeah, how can I how can I sit and create stakes or create a system that's going to force me to produce that? So 
the artificial deadlines with my friend yeah. are just a way to, to to kind of make me fit that into the system somehow. Um, but I, I, definitely... I do that. I, that's something I sort of flagged up to myself as well is that I, I don't, don't think I've probably ever missed a deadline, you know, for anything academic or other things, almost I'm fairly confident that I've always delivered that. So if you're working on something that is kind of, you're the only, you're only accountable to yourself. You do have to almost like outsource some accountability to like, make sure you follow through. I think that's, that's quite important. Um, well, it's, it certainly helps for me if you're sort of, you know, you don't want to renege on something that you've said you would do. So it's just making sure other people know that you're doing it right. That can really help. Yeah. And I, I think you're actually better at better at deadlines than I am. I think I, I have ones where I, I sort of probably stick to them 80% of the time. And then there's other times where I'm saying to people, do you mind if I have another day or two on this? Or I need, you know, I haven't quite finished this. Um, unless it's like really important that that tends to be my pattern, but I find you tend to be good at just you actually, I think I probably have more. Um, and I mean, this is a compliment to you. I have more like perfectionist tendencies in you where I can stifle myself by thinking this needs to be done in the right way. And I don't have time. Whereas you'll just be like, let's just crack anything I've done with you. You'll have this attitude of, um, let's just put that piece in. Okay. Does that work? Yep. Okay. Let's move on to the next. And you'll right. just kind of check through it and get it done. I think you're good at just deciding, okay, it's got to get done. So let's get it done and not obsess over it. Yeah. I think that that's probably true. Does that then for you though, does that kind of run counter to your good enough is good enough thing? Like is, cause I was going to ask you like what sort of personal realizations have you made about yourself that help your productivity, even as basic as, I'm a morning person, you know, that kind of thing. Like how do you even work out when would be the best time for you to do your most creative or important or effective work? Like which like really fundamental, who are you questions have shaped that for you? Yeah. So on the good enough thing, that's more something I I've had to constantly remind and teach myself over the years, to be honest, because there was definitely times where I used to put off things for ages just just creative things i would have fun doing it, it might even be something like doing a podcast like this it might just be me saying i don't feel like i have all the resources and equipment and all the ideas i want yet i don't have the perfect idea so i won't write a script or i won't do a podcast because i don't feel like i've got a killer idea yet and and really that's always bit of an excuse and it's a mm. bit of a way of it, it, it's it's the perfect way to hold yourself back really because the truth is if you even have an inkling that you want to do it you probably do have some ideas if you want to write short stories you probably have some ideas within you that you can dig out but you do have to take the shovel and start digging really you can't you can't wait for it to come out so i i have had to teach myself lowering my standards has often just made me um yeah, so some often made me produce my best work. So I did a weekly blog there's for that, a long. There's that. Um, there's that quote. I think it's a Wayne Gretzky quote that Michael Scott in the office repurposes as his own quote. It's that you miss, or it's like you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Right? It's like you have to just put yourself either put yourself out there if you want to apply it more broadly, but if you want to create something, you kind of need to start writing a script if you want to talk about a script you can't just sit and think about it the pen has to touch the paper at some point yeah and what i've learned is that it's so much easier to mess it up a bit first and start correcting course 
and you start to realize what does and doesn't work. But when yeah. you're talking about it in the abstract as a th- and theorizing, you've, you've kind of got no data to run on. So with a short story, until you do a couple of bad stories, you've got nothing to tell you what you're good and bad at. And mm. it's the same with you, what you, your follow-up question, which was how do you know when your best, most productive times are? That's something where I, I'm on, like, I think you have to undergo constant testing and constant. You're, you only learn by testing yourself. Like I do this with the gym. I, for a long time, have always thought, when's the best time for me to work out every day? I learned that I actually don't like working out. For, for a while, I tried first thing in the morning. I find that kind of, I actually have a lot of creative energy in the morning and it's not best spent on me going and killing myself in the gym. And then I come back, have to shower, have to eat, and then sit down and write. It's actually better for me to get a bit done first in the morning in my first few hours. And then maybe like either lunch or afternoon I like to go. Like in here in LA, we've been doing a pattern of we all kind of work together at the desk. And then around 4 or 5 p.m., me and Matt will go to the gym. When our energy starts to flag, we, we can feel that people are starting to muck around a bit. We're kind of not really paying attention anymore. That's the time. Okay, the best yeah, thing yeah. now to do is something physical where your mind doesn't need to be... Yeah, if you there. start the day the other way around, you don't have that option, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people end up doing things like the gym when their mind could be maximally engaged you know yeah because i think timing does matter with productivity and learning yourself is huge and so even just learning even just learning you need a break right now for an hour and then come back and do it again i think those things matter and i think too many people try and push through you know there's a funny thing matt says sometimes at his retreat where he says that a lot of he, he matt doesn't consider himself you know, by anyone's standards, he's accomplished a huge amount of things, but he's actually not someone I know to be obsessively, relentlessly um, working all the time. But he says he has a deep awareness of how pathetic he is in terms of what he's actually capable of accomplishing every day. That's another and, thing me and Matt have in common. <laughs> and realizing, you know what, I'm not a superhuman and I'm not going to be able to do everything. So here are the places where I'm going to be really effective. And maybe I only have three to four hours of great, great work in me a day. And I'm going to aggressively carve them out and say no to everything else and use it on those. So it's almost identifying for yourself where, where's the area you're going to get maximum leverage. Well, if you're a writer or a creative person, or you're learning whatever, an instrument, those things are going to, it's going to have to be that deep practice. What Cal Newport, the author Cal Newport calls deep work. And you're going to have to take yourself out of the world for a bit. You're going to have to put away distraction. You're going to have to say those hours are sacred. And that is me actually getting the day's practice in. And maybe everything else is just managing your life and all the things that come with being a person, life admin, sure, do, yeah. managing your business so things don't fall apart. If you're a business and you have customer complaints, queries, people messaging you, maybe that's all the stuff later on where you don't really need the mental energy. You can just kind of do those. But, but I think what, what I used to do in the past, would I, you know, say when we were at Oxford and I was doing my PhD, a PhD is almost the absolute 
apex of having to figure out some kind of self-discipline. And to be honest, I'm not sure I ever properly figured it out while I did my PhD. It was very, the process was very messy. I was not someone who did my PhD in a highly organized way. But I did eventually learn in the, in the last stretch when the crunch time comes, what I learned was I, I'm not going to be able to do math. It's going to take as long as it's going to take. I can't really expedite that process. But what I would do was just get up in the morning and I would go to the library and just have like those the first three to four hours were utterly sacred in terms of whatever the most difficult, ugly thing that has to be done on this project. Now I'm going to take this on first. Cause I'm just, if I, if I wait till the end of the day, I'm just not going to have my, my willpower just slowly runs out from the morning mm. to the evening. And by the end of the day, I'm just, I'm just not going to feel like, tearing apart a whole paragraph and trying to put it back together again. I'm going to be fiddling. I'm going to be doing footnotes and silly things. But the thing that's really going to move it is me actually getting the next section written. So I would always look at like the ugliest thing and do that first of all. What actual things that you, you sort of like brushed over it in the build up to that kind of description there was saying close off all distractions. What actual like practical, tangible things do you do to do so? Is it as simple as make sure your phone is turned off, do you turn the Wi-Fi off on your computer? These are the things that I'm, I find really difficult at the moment because I need to be on the internet to do many of the facets of my job, but being on the internet is this terrible black hole of trouble. Having mm. I get lots of messages come through on my phone that I need to respond to but I know that they distract me from doing the things they almost ask me to do. It's like this weird kind of catch. And like you say, for that deep work or creative or just building a piece of a project you have to build or make some calls or do whatever the kind of meat of your job is, you are best to do that unencumbered. But I, it, it just becomes so tricky when the things that distract you are the things you also have to do. Yeah, I... I sympathize with that. And, uh, the way, you know, the, the way I've learned that, as I said before is, I mean, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a productivity junkie by any means. Um, there's a lot of this I fall down on constantly. Well, I think you're, I think you're a good person to ask about this because I know that you're not that, but still sort of get your stuff done. Right. Whereas the people who do it because it's their like religion is productivity. It's kind of, it becomes the task in itself. Just yeah, I I guess you've got I, more I, to say in many ways. Yeah, I I guess I'm I'm not as good as those. There are people I look up to being productive that I I fall way way short of. And uh, but yeah, I guess there's certain things I do manage to get finished. But I think for me, the the batch. So so I I have that that conflict where certain things are just urgent and bothersome. Um, I find the batching thing is the best solution to that. The more you can pre-batch, the more you can have rigged the game from the beginning, um, then you're kind of dealing with less fires. You know, there's like, I think Anthony Bourdain had this thing about how so much of cooking was about what they call mise en place. You know, how having all your things set up before you go into the kitchen, having everything the right... Uh, cooking utensils where you need them, the plates where you need them, the ingredients. And the more of that they had ready, 
the the easier it was to put out any you read that's a really really good point i think you'll read like a I don't know, a recipe in the newspaper in the sunday supplement or something and it will say you know quite quite a complicated recipe and it'll say prep time like five minutes and if you just have a normal kitchen that's not designed to deal with that you're going to spend an hour scrabbling around to find you know right. grated whatever it is if you yeah. don't set yourself up to succeed in advance you're going to be scrabbling around wasting time right yeah and i spent i spent months or years with social media where i was in charge of our social media and would just have this constant process of putting out fires and not having the amount of time i wanted i'd be doing things at 10 p.m at night doing things before bed and it was just a constant bugbear and it took a lot of it's against my natural instincts because i'm a bit more of an absent-minded person. I'm not an organized person. I, I had to just introduce, I, I'm never going to be a hyper-efficient, super-organized person, but I know I can increase it by about 30% and probably do have a lot of powerful effect just by you doing You mean on top of how you are now, you, you think you've got that much room to improve? I mean, I probably have room to improve more, but I mean, even just stretching my, my natural oh. ability just by 30% would probably change the game. And so, you know, we, we do certain things a week in advance now where we, we think about all the content, you know, with the person I work with on our social media. Um, and that's another lesson, by the way, if you can get, if you can get people who actually help you complement your weaknesses you know, especially if you have a company or whatever, that this person I work with on social media is far more organized than I am. That's her strength. I'm good at putting the stuff together, figuring out the creative. And so there's a kind of complement of strengths there. But but us deciding, okay, we're now gonna, we're doing things a week in advance now so that we're gonna pre-batch so that when the week comes, we don't actually have to, we, we don't get distracted so much from our daily task because there's not unless there's something crazy happened, like there's some, I don't know, there's some really terrible wrong thing that went out on social media and now we've got to fight fires, in which case we'll have some emergency WhatsApp thread, say, that's like a code we, ha we have on our... Uh, so we, our whole company uses a piece of software called Basecamp where you can manage projects. And uh, we have one Basecamp group called Code Red. And that's just for, you know you will get alerted. Everyone will see on their email, a code red comes in. Oh my God, the YouTube video this week hasn't been posted and it's supposed to be posted by now or it's been posted with the wrong title. And then people can you know, run and fight fires. But apart from that, you know, now with daily social media stuff, I don't really, once it's pre-batched and scheduled and that, unless someone gives me a code red, I don't really look at what's going out. I don't concern myself with it. I know that it's, a minor thing compared to, you know, say if we're, we're working on a product right now, that right now has a huge amount of importance because that product might sell for years mm. and is going to be a big part of our company. So it's, it's just saying to myself, what is actually going to matter in, in a year's time? What's going to matter is that this product is something we're really proud of and perfect. It's not going to matter what quote went out on social media on yeah. Monday morning. Um, even though that thing... But like you say, that thing you can't just push aside because it, it has an importance. It has a place. Like we need to be doing that. But once it's pre-batched and pre-scheduled, then then I, I've put all my thinking time in to say, okay, I'm going to think about all of next week's social media posts for my whole Friday is going to be, my whole Friday morning or my whole Friday first day is going to be looking at that, deciding on the quotes, deciding on everything. So then 
once I've done that, it's locked in then and I'm not going to spread it out over seven days, if that makes sense. I'm just going to pour my stress about that into one day. Yeah, something that sort of, I've got two things I want to say on what you've just said there, but one of the things that I relate to on a more sort of like personal task way is not trying to spread myself across three or four tasks because often my tasks will be create or write something, do a piece of admin and do a piece of kind of communicating with someone. And I'm definitely much more efficient if I do them one by one, if I'm trying to do them concurrently, I'm just bad at all three. And I'd, I'd rather the person wait half an hour for me to respond so that I can write the thing I need to write and do the piece of administration than sort of tentatively reply without ne- necessarily everything I need to say. The thing that I'm writing then takes two hours to write. You know, it's, I've found that for me, A, I would triage the things. Obviously, like you say, if it's a kind of code red issue, deal with that straight away. But beyond that, I'm much more effective if I just pick a kind of stream and stick to it rather than having five tabs open and I'm addressing five things at the same time. It just, it kills you. It's the same for, I don't know, academic work or something that I think is really applicable to me, or at least a lesson I learned from it is I can't read two books concurrently. I can't read, I can't have two novels on the go. Yeah. It would take me three weeks to read both of them. But if I read one after the other, I'll read each of them in three days. Um, Yeah. And I think that's sort of a bit of a silly way, but that's probably where I'm most productive. I can read a lot, I can concentrate a lot, and I can focus on it because I've worked out a way that works for me and a kind of dedicated, no distractions approach to it. And a lot of that sounds silly as well, but like prepping myself to do it, I've made sure I've picked a book I almost know I'm going to like. It's something, I mean, I'm sat in a room that's quiet. I've, I've sort of set like the mise-en place or whatever. I've set my kitchen up to be able to read in the way that I want to and I can do it. If I try and approach it, you know, like lots of balls in the air at the same time kind of thing, I, I can't get stuff done in the way I'd like to. So that's definitely something that really helps me. Yeah. And I've lost weeks doing that before where I realized at the end of the week, I'm like, I'm like, I didn't write a blog this week. I didn't write uh, that, that uh, you know, working on that product that was like the main important thing, ironically, I think for a lot of people is almost the easiest thing to let slide because it's, because when you're fighting fires, that feels important, but there might be something in the background where you're like, man, if we just made this product or if I made 10 more sales calls or whatever, that might change the whole company mm. or whatever. But it's just the thing that, that seems big in your head and the fires seem urgent. So you just shove that away. And that's in many where, ways, it's a yeah. bit, it's a bit like the sort of the problem that social media is in of itself is like, if you chase small things, you get like a small buzz from doing it. You'll almost get like a little endorphin buzz or dopamine hit from doing a tiny piece of probably fairly inconsequential administration. Whereas if you spent time doing the kind of, deep creative process you might not get the buzz for three months but when the buzz comes through suddenly you've got a product that's making you loads of money right so um it's it's like prioritizing what's important and sitting on instagram and getting a dopamine hit from a like isn't actually meaningful in the long run at all right it's just like it's the wrong signal to chase yeah it's almost like if uh you know you know i always think this when i see famous people who are on Insta on, on Twitter or say, and they've got a few million followers and you could think, Oh, they, you know, you know, they might sit tweeting a lot, but you think that's not what made them have 3 million followers. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you look at a great director or, or someone who's on Twitter, you, you think 
he's got two million followers because of his films that yeah. he Not the body because of, of his pithy takes on the week's political affairs yeah. yeah it's the body of work that has garnered you that audience and i think if you focus on your body of work uh, i don't you know maybe that's an idealistic view but i think if you focus on your body of work that's the sort of 80% of the results and the rest is the 20% of kind of nice cherry on top of, yeah, we got some attention by doing some tweets or doing some social media, but yeah, you, you know, you and the language score, I know a lot of your results, you, you've built up an impressive audience and it's come from, you know, you've got Cooper making these fun, cool language videos that take some creativity they take some effort they take some thought on his part but it's it's the content that people are responding to they're not just responding to oh we we threw up a bunch of pictures of <laughs> yeah sure yeah you know and uh yeah so i i do you know i i don't know that's my view on it and uh i think with social media i've always been someone who i understand how it works and i know i know i could use social media more and possibly grow certain things more that way. But I also know that it would be sort of a hollow kind of growth that isn't, if I look back in five years, I'd be like, well, I didn't make anything significant or do anything, but I've grown a lot of followers. And what's the use of this now? Yeah, uh, I've still got to do the important work. If I want to write a book or something, it's like that's still got to happen somehow. Yeah. And so I do look at it, I, and this is why philosophically I think about productivity and I think what, what is it really? And it's, it's got to be, you know, I, I have a kind of, I try and think really big with it and think it's got to be stuff that if you don't get it done, you'll regret it one day, whether it's like two years, five years, 10 years. Being productive to me is getting the stuff done so that you can look back on your life and say, I did, I focused my time on things that were valuable to me and mm -hmm. th things that meant something rather than I spent five years doing admin in a job without really, you know, constantly put off the things that I would actually like to do. Now, it doesn't matter to me if your job, if whatever your day job is happens to be your dream job or not, but there's probably a couple of hours in a day you could carve out aggressively and say, even if my job is not the thing I love being productive in those two hours a day, I could spend making music, writing, doing a podcast, working on a, a separate project or a, a company that I'm, I do care about, or even just like a charity or an organization. You can, you can still find those like, what are my two great hours to spend on that thing per day? And the thing, what it does for you is gives you to me, it's like when I'm being productive on something that matters, it, it gives me a sense of purpose and fulfillment that I feel like I'm, I feel like what I'm doing matters. And I feel that's the most important thing to me is, am I doing things that matter to me right now? And, you know, especially getting to 30, you start to think more and more about the stuff that the stuff that you're doing that you also feel adds no value or little value. And it might just be, you know, the, the author, Tim Ferriss, who, he wrote a very, very popular book, The 4-Hour Workweek. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Tim Ferriss. But um, he had this thing that I thought was really game-changing for me that was about... Because I think one distraction we're not mentioning so far is just the, the social distractions. Um, whether it's just you're being asked to do a bunch of stuff and maybe you find it difficult to say no to it. And he had this test where it was... 
you, you look at a scale of one to 10 about how much you want to do something. And he said, anything, and he, and he said, you take out the number seven. So there's no number seven in there. So he said, if you think about whether you want to do something, maybe it's go to a dinner, maybe it's go to a social event, you can score out of 10, but you can't use seven. So he says, if it's like a eight out of 10, that's actually something you're pretty into. Like you're quite, you're quite like stoked for that. So you should do it. And if it's a six, that's kind of barely passing. So you should probably just say no and not really bother if something's a six out of 10 for you. But I think a lot of us do do things, not even just socially, but other things that may be a six out of 10 for us, where we kind of just do it anyway, because... Because really we give it a seven because he's just saying that the 10 point scale is just not a very good judge, right? Well, well, it's just that as as soon as you put a seven on something, you're just kind of again in the middle, but it's like take out the middle. You can't be in the middle. Whereas you're sort of, and I I have found seven, seven's not the middle, (laughs) but but people, but people don't ever score anything out of 10 that they're kind of keen on anything below a four. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Really maybe a five or a six point scale. Yeah, it's that it's that part where you're in the middle, and I, I have found that sort of thing massively useful. And um, well, and I really a, a skill that I that I think is really relatable to that that I I think I've I don't know um, honed quite well is just being able to sort of determine what is relevant and what isn't for a task, like just on a specific task. If you know what I don't know, building something or doing a piece of administrative, you know, work if you can just determine which things you can just kind of cut and throw away and just focus on the thing that needs to get done, that in of itself just saves a lot of time. I don't, I don't know how maybe to hone that skill, but it's something that, that certainly serves a really important purpose. I guess it's just positive results from trying things before, you know, stripping the fat away from something. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think a big theme is, uh, a big theme I think is simplicity and reduction. Like so much of what has helped me has just been realizing all the extraneous things I did that were not really helping. Like when people talk a lot about how they have so many emails to respond to, I always think like I, I get emails and stuff a lot, but why do you feel the need to, why do you feel the need? Cause you got 20 messages in your inbox today to have to, respond to like is it really helping you to respond to every single email you got today is that does that really matter and are you going to allow in any message that comes in does that mean that gets to monopolize your time it's kind of giving too much authority to anyone else basically to just come and hijack time and and this is where one of my great failings george as we talked about on my on the habits episode is my my terrible my terrible ability to get back to people. Um, and it's because your it's time's of, more important than anyone else's. <laughs> well, this is the thing. It's kind of a dual strength and a weakness because as you know, I'll have many WhatsApp messages that I intentionally, sometimes unintentionally won't get back to because I know I just don't need to put that in my head right now. I need to focus on something else. Sometimes it's even as just as, I'm, I need to focus on reading right If I don't aggressively, more than ever right now in the age of distraction, I find reading is incredibly hard to keep myself doing. And this is where one, one part where you completely outpace me is that you read far more prolifically than I do. And uh, I read more than the average person, but I'm finding it harder than ever to just sit down and avoid distraction reading. And And one big part of that to me was 
turning notifications off on basically any app on my phone yeah. because I find any time it's just such an intrusion when a WhatsApp message comes through, especially on your computer as well. If I haven't linked up to my computer, suddenly a new WhatsApp from a friend is taking priority. And if I have my laptop open and I'm trying to read, it's a disaster. And mm. I found that I have to... I have to close the laptop and almost just sit on my bed and read or go in another room. Oh, and- you, have, you have to do that, I think. I, so you mentioned a bit earlier, you mentioned Basecamp, and that made me want to kind of ask which apps. It's a sort of strange irony, right, that you would seek out apps to help you be more productive when really the phone is probably the greatest sort of suck away from any productivity possible. But the one that's given me the most kind of I don't know, measurable improvement for me has been particularly with things like reading and not being distracted by a barrage of messages is the Facebook newsfeed eradicator. Now, if I didn't work for a company that needed a Facebook presence, I probably would have just completely shot the whole thing. But as someone that kind of has to keep it, this app just, it kills your newsfeed, right? So you, you can see events, you can see people and you can, you can dig into people and see what's going on, but it, it kills that sort of mindless stream of information that just pops forward and it kills the notifications. And I can now sit and even have Facebook open on my laptop and sit in front of it and read without it killing me. Whereas before beforehand, you were seeing this mindless troll through things and it's impossible to resist. So that's something that, that has really, really helped with that. And like you say, then if you can go one further and just turn app notifications off full stop, then that's another really big one. Yeah, there's also an app called Freedom. Have you heard of that? No. Um, That's one that's uh, another step ahead, which is, um, or another step more extreme, where it actually uh, won't allow you to access the internet on your computer for any set time you say and you could you could say 30 minutes or you can say two hours but basically it then just it then just blocks the internet on your computer for that time and i I used to find that was pretty that was useful in in just bursts of saying 60 minutes i i have no choice there's no ability to respond to emails or read anything now and once you do that you've locked yourself out you feel kind of pathetic if you don't spend that time actually doing the thing uh, and Did you that can have of, a measurable benefit for you i used to do it with the thesis when i was writing my thesis and on my phd that used to be a part of my morning was was blocking for two hours because it, it i know there are certain times a day when i i will just get things thrown at me and, th- and this again is why for me the mornings or late in the evenings work better for my deep work because the, the evenings aren't optimal because that's when I'm tired and I'm more apt to say I'm just going to go to bed. But the morning, the first two hours, I'm the least least likely to have anything urgent thrown at me. It's mm. not likely there's going to be something at eight in the morning where someone's like, "Hey, you've got to get back on this." Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that for me, I I've, forgot what your question was that led to that. Um, uh, well, just apps or things that have been. Oh, the, the, yeah. So I would do that with the thesis, but. But with the reading as well, I've had to be, it's honestly the thing that last year shocked me in terms of how challenging it's become. And it's particularly with fiction, which is something, again, that I, it's easier to read nonfiction because I can make that job related and say, well, I'm trying to learn things. But with fiction, it's something that 
you you can feel frivolous about and you feel like well this is a luxury but it's something that matters to me and in a way that's something that's quite hard to you know for example i'm trying to learn spanish this year and that's the same thing it's like a luxury thing that i enjoy doing but it's also the easiest thing to just not have the time to do and so why last, year on year has that gotten harder for you i think i think something about the prolonged reading of fiction I do think that could be a cultural thing of like, I'm so used to things being just on demand and quick and something about that. Get ch- It's like changing your brain to a different mode where you are just trying to suck yourself into a novel and really it's almost, you have to warm up and get into it. And once I'm in, I'm fine, but the run up to getting warmed up and doing it, I can find it can put me off reading fiction for weeks. That's I think that's the thing that people who I guess in general people who don't read much going from not reading much to having to sit down and read a book that in of itself is the same thing right if you don't normally read you have to kind of turn your brain on to read and sort of focus and concentrate that's something that I think I have gotten good at is it's the stage before you start the book, but the process of picking the book, right? And like making sure if you're going to sit and read a novel, don't read something that with all the love in the world, you're going to read Brothers Karamazov and it's going to take you 10 years to read it. It's just, however great or improving it is, it's not the best way to do it, right? Pick a novel that has either been really well recommended or just ticks all your boxes and sit down and read it. That's that's kind of your best bet. If the first few pages are, are a slog, then if you don't do it often, you're, sort of sabotaging yourself because you're going to you're going to put yourself off the whole process of reading by making one bad decision right and that's that's a terrible thing to do yeah and uh i've fallen into that trap where i i just ha- i've had to say to myself before i'm i'm just going to pick the next book that immediately grabs my most immediate even if it's not the ideal where i mm-hmm. say i've been putting off that book i'm just like to get back into reading i have to pick the lowest resistance possible mm. and uh, there's something to that with actual general productivity as well as with going with uh, like i'm saying with the short story thing that's something that on its own can seem like a mountain where you've got a blank page and have to write a short story but the lowest resistance thing is honestly something like writing a paragraph about something that happened in my day and feeling like oh i i can put these words together and there's a paragraph and maybe the the story i subsequently write has absolutely nothing to do with that but it's just the lowest resistance like keeping a diary for me in terms of i i only i keep a diary on my laptop i make it easy so i don't have to sit and write by hand but just starting to do that it then just loosens me up and loosens up the muscles to be like okay i could open that document now and write a bit of a short story and and so find your lowest resistance way in and you can kind of get things going. Yeah. It's the, for me, if we're going to carry on the reading thing, just for a second longer, it's also, I have a really big to be read pile. There's tons of books on it. At, at one point in time, each of those was the book that like most caught my imagination. But if six months have passed, I've sort of forgotten why I wanted to read it or the jacket looks really crappy or something like that. So I can look at books that I was really enthused to read and now I just think I have no interest in that. But if something happens 
if it's mentioned in a film or there's some reference point to it, I suddenly get this kind of interest back in that and I really have to capitalise on that. I think, oh, wow, I'm looking at my shelf now and there's there's one about the First World War. I've not got any interest at the moment. At the moment. Over Christmas, there was that amazing documentary the, the um, uh, where they colourised all the black and white footage about the First World War. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, I need to pick those up. And I've, I've put that back on like really high up on my list again. And silly things like that, use, just use a spark of something else to kind of get you into the, into the zone or that like lowest barrier that you're talking about. It can change day to day, right? It doesn't always just have to be, oh, it's Harry Potter. It'll be easy to read. It's just whatever captures your imagination in that moment. Yeah, I had that when uh, I abandoned a Napoleon book that I was actually enjoying um, for like six months. And then the exhibition was happening in France, which was the biggest Napoleon exhibition they've ever had of all his, uh, you know, military uh, military memorabilia and things like that. And then I just suddenly had this burst because I was going to go to Paris and I thought I'm going to go see that exhibition. And I had this burst of I'm going to finish the Napoleon biography now. So I understand the context for this when i go and see it um yeah so sometimes you have good timing with certain stuff mm. and uh yeah it's um yeah i'm trying to think of people listening to this generally i'm trying to think what what struggles i guess we've covered a lot of what people would struggle with in productivity i think it's just again i i want to stress the point of keeping it simple and i, I think people try and overcomplicate their lives and their the things they have to do and that's when things get scary because you're you're spending every day feeling like you're drowning and trying to get this list of incredibly audacious goals finished and i think that i find for me that's when i fall off the treadmill and everything becomes chaos and so for me my ultimate my ultimate takeaway that i've learned is is to try and reduce think of the things you can sacrifice and even if it's just extra things you do that you don't really enjoy or things you don't have to spend time on, think of the things you can sacrifice. Think of the things you can say no to. And then look at what's the, the simplest two tasks that if you got them done in a day, you would feel really good about how that day went. And, and sometimes that is just the next, the next 10 yards of progress on a much longer term dream or goal. But you know, if I, if I did that, if I went to that class, if I wrote that piece, I would just feel great. If I wrote 500 words, I'd feel great. And uh, yeah, and then it kind of sets me up to feel good about everything. Whereas I, I, if I don't do those, I find I can be as busy as anything and then at the end feel kind of vaguely unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with like a year, I could feel vaguely unsatisfied with a year if I thought, yeah, we did loads of stuff that year, but I didn't. I didn't really stretch myself in the way creatively that I wanted to. Um, do you do you do you take inventory of your life, George? Do you kind of like look at it at times and kind of, you know, look at where you've been and where you're going and think, you know, in the wider sense, do you think, well, if I'm going to get here in five years, these are the areas I need to be productive in now. Like, I'm just wondering how how big a map do you think of your life in that way, or do you kind of think in the next year? these are the things I'd like to achieve or do. Yeah, I think um, I certainly do take stock in, in that way, but I think the nature of say the projects I'm working on at the moment is like fairly 
in its infancy, certainly in comparison to say your brother's company. So the milestones at the moment are still, we need to establish this so that this can happen. So, you know, looking longer term, you'd think, oh, if all these things go well, things will be brilliant and we can like look you know, five years at a time. But at the moment, it's very much, let's get these things done in the next eight weeks, almost that creating deadlines for ourselves so that the next thing can happen. So I suppose at the moment, I'm doing a lot of measuring in the shorter term with a with then a less specific, but more optimistic longer term view almost. Like, I don't know what will happen in five years, but I know that if the things go right in the short term, the five years can go the way I want them to, if you see what I mean. So um, there's probably a bit more of that just because of the nature of the the project I'm working on. But um, I am mindful that there's also a combination of, like there's a big period in your life when you sort of prioritize acquiring new skills and then there is a period in your life when you need to apply them. And that's not to say that you can't acquire new skills later in life and that's not to say you can't apply them earlier. But there is definitely obviously a transition between I've spent this time learning how to do something, now I'm going to do it and hope it has an impact. And I'm sort of on the cusp between the two, if you know what I mean. So it's it's I'm going through that change and yeah probably shifts my focus because I'm just making sure I need to apply the things I've learned to these things and then we'll see how they bear fruit. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a nice way of looking at it. And, um, yeah, the, the reason I ask is cause I, I sometimes wonder, you know, we care about productivity is often a huge topic. And in this day and age, people are very obsessed with optimizing that particularly ambitious people. And I think there's always a, a, question about what's the best way to get more juice into it we probably know more than ever about psychology and things like that and about what motivates people and those kind of things but you know the ultimate foundation of it is we want to we want to be productive because we want to be happy in some respects and um, i often think i often think about in terms of because I try not to think in terms of too many life goals these days because I, i i think i used to think in trying to think like the whole year and further ahead and what am I trying to achieve in my life? And I find that these things can often just lead you onto this treadmill of trying to get the next thing done and put away. But the question is, are you actually enjoying what you're doing? And for me, I kind I, I think now like happiness with productivity might just be more simple about deciding right now, you know, say me and you are doing this podcast. I'm writing these short stories. Um, uh, you know, I'm working on projects with Matt. Those are all things that add to my, you know, criteria of happiness. My criteria of happiness might be, I want to feel like I'm doing work that impacts people. I want to feel like I get to be creative every day. I want to feel like I get to have stimulating conversations like we have. And, and so in some ways it's kind of just, I think of it on a day to day level a bit now in terms of, I don't try and think so much about what's everything's exact you know, say with this podcast or something, it's like, I'm not thinking about what's everything's exact translation to what is the end goal of this. Mm-hmm. It's more, is this, is being productive on this serving my needs right now? And is it exciting? Is it interesting? Is it stretching me? Um, yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if you, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but in terms of, cause I think it just can be, people can be very ambitious and be very productive, but maybe not very happy sometimes or, or feeling like they're just constantly, dissatisfied with their level of productivity and getting you know the results aren't coming quick enough so i'm feeling angry at myself and 
just banging your head against the wall. But yeah, definitely. I think there's also uh, I don't want to say use the term luxury for what you have as in that you know that you're getting away with it in that sense. But like you you've got the luck of you enjoy being a creative person, and your job requires you to be creative. So you're there's always going to be an advantage there if you were doing a you know a nine to five administrative role. I suppose. <laughs> there's just different ways of how it plays out. There's that personality type, like that thing I asked you earlier about what you know about yourself for your productivity. If you know you're creative and you know that your rolling requires you to be productive, it's kind of a win-win, right? But also if you know you're an organizer or a, these different personality types, the most productive thing you can do is apply yourself to the things that suit you, right? Like yeah. you, you would be massively, not in a like, nasty way, but like, you'd be massively misplaced if you were working as a PA, however productive you were and how many things you'd be ticking off because it's not yeah. the thing that you'd find fulfilling just as someone who enjoys organizing or, you know, that kind of stuff working. So it's on the day to day, if you can align yourself with the thing that's most suited to who you are, you're going to find the short term and longer term gains in being productive and just applying yourself in that way I suppose so yeah it's kind of finding out a bit more about who you are to know that you're like plowing a furrow that's worth pursuing because then you'd put all your energy into it and the productivity will kind of come naturally I suppose yeah I I think I think playing to your strengths is a massive part of it and I think it it becomes it becomes easier to self-motivate and direct when you feel you're doing something that plays to your natural strengths. Mm. I remember um, the wor- one of my worst place jobs I was in was I got, uh, someone got me an internship through a friend of a friend at the Times um, newspaper when I was at university. And I remember where I was on the culture desk and I was loving it and I was put there and, and all the things I like, arts, books, etc. And I had lots of ideas and I was bringing to the table. And then they said... Um, we're going to put you on the foreign desk for a while. Uh, You're a massive xenophobe, right? So, <laughs> nightmare. I'm going to say precisely no to that right now. Um, um, I was put on the foreign affairs desk and it was a much different environment. It was much faster paced. It was very news, obviously, very breaking news oriented. You kind of had to do extremely quick research. It had to be meticulous and organized and fast. And you had to get things off exactly, very detail oriented and organized. Both things I'm very bad at. Um, And I remember, but they gave me work on it because I think I sort of fluked my first day. And uh, they gave me some paid shifts. So I was like, this is amazing. I'm getting paid to go to the Times and work. And it was sort of a slow, <laughs> the whole thing was a slow realization, probably on mine and their part. But <laughs> I was very badly suited to this position. And I was kind of going in and doing these shifts, but I was, it was so stressful. I was just constantly feeling like, I hope they don't find out how much I'm, you know, not, not keeping up here. And, uh, you know, it just, just having an eye for detail has never, I've always been bad at proofreading my own work because I'm not good at the detail. Um, and it was just, it was just sort of countdown to realizing this is never going to work because I am a terrible fit at this. And I was slowly losing motivation and productivity. Cause if you just go to something where you feel like I am fighting to even stay barely competent at this, yeah. it's extremely hard to stay productive and focused on what you're doing. Cause you just, you just slowly start to lose motivation. So yeah, I, I found, 
I found slowly inching in any way possible towards the things I'm naturally stronger at and anything I can, anything I can expedite or, you know, hand over to someone else where the areas I'm less strong at or get someone to help me with those areas, Mm. things tend to work way like things tend to get so much better in terms of what you get done and you start to get done things that are impressive and that people like because you're playing to your strengths so yeah it's going to be different for everyone but there's a cool book on that called uh strength finder 2.0 i think it's a test you can do online um and you can look at they they kind of try and match people to careers it's been very popular and they try and match people based on what their strengths are so that's actually good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm mindful, Steve, that this is becoming rather long, or uh, certainly going that way, and it's probably not helpful. Have we, have um, we hit the? Have we hit the hour mark? I, I, I don't know because I've not been tracking it properly, but it feels like we're around that point. But there were, there were two quick little points I wanted to make before maybe we move into our, our recommendations. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the two little things I wanted to flag up, if you, if you aren't aware of them, one would be something that you put me onto, which is the Pomodoro method, um, which. It's just a kind of a productivity tool of breaking down tasks into about 20, well, 25 minutes is the sort of set chunk, but doing a 25 minute hit of work, having a five minute break, doing 25 minutes of work again, it's, it's sort of a really good balance, particularly if you're doing something like something involves writing or even just organize, organizing or planning, you can get a lot done in 25 minutes of pure work. And then a five minute break seems to be just about right. And if you think, you know, if you do five or 10 of those, you've, you've been doing some really serious work and there's plenty of apps that help with that. There's one I use called, um, uh, B, B something. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, B something baby. That's the one. Um, yeah, there's, if you just Google like Pomodoro apps, there's, there's plenty of them, but it's, it's a great way to work. And it's something that you would, you were doing doing during your defil. And uh, I picked it up from there. Uh, yeah, I love, I love using that. And, uh, yeah, use that many times when I've been trying to just get something written. Usually a blog post works great for that. Um, mm-hmm. Just getting an idea done. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, or, and the, the other one, I don't know if you use it, but I use a lot is another sort of website app called Trello, which is just a really, I find a really useful kind of, um, it's like a sticky board of, of tabs and you can organize them in, in kind of streams of tasks. And for me, that's, that's really useful. Like I said earlier, the way I sort of break things down, I just break them up into columns and then focus on one at a time. And it's a, it's a really useful way of doing that. And you can share it with multiple people as well. So um, yeah, if you're working collaboratively, it's a, it's a good way of staying on top of things. I'd appreciate if anyone has any um, productivity apps or tools or advice um, to share them with us as well, because some of those I'd, I'd never heard of before and they've completely changed how I work. So any others would be appreciated. And if anyone has a cure for my crushing YouTube addiction I'd appreciate <laughs> as well, because that is probably probably your greatest advice I haven't spoken about on this uh, this podcast is I'm I'm. Well, addicted. you said you said your um, one of your kind of pledges was to move your YouTube watching into watching films. Have you been able to do that at all? I have done that more. Yeah, I've substituted more of that. I've watched less YouTube this year, but um, I do uh, I do have a deep love for it. And their recommendation algorithm is getting so good. So, <laughs> just yeah, if anyone has delete your delete your like browsing history or whatever, that can really help, right? Like I Elizabeth, my my girlfriend, she sort of got sucked into the world of like beauty bloggers for a while, and it just meant that all the recommendations she got were those, and it became quite a vicious cycle. But 
she just deleted her history and they don't crop up anymore. She doesn't. So much of the stuff we get sucked into is just you do it through kind of lazy apathy of like automated responses. You just go, yeah, okay. And you just get in the habit of doing it, right? So if you can break any habit, you're going to do really well. That's uh, for me, I suppose that's to mention it at the very end, but it's like my underlying tool for being more productive is just break the habits that I know don't help me be productive. So um, yeah, that's a good way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's interesting. Um, well, we'll, we'll return to this at some point. We'll return to something around productivity. <laughs> we'll I'm sure something out of the last hour. Won't we? <laughs> we'll see how our year goes and report on uh, if any techniques have worked. Mm. Um, so let's give some quick recommendations. The proof will be in the pudding, right? Steve? If this is the last podcast we ever do, then that'll have been a terrible, <laughs> terrible failure of productivity. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, let's give our book, film, and music recommendation on productivity. What you got for me, George? Uh, well, how relevant are yours? Because I think I, mine become increasingly less relevant to the theme. But I'll start with a book. Um, something I read just after Christmas. I thought this was excellent. It's called The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone by Brian Merchant. And um, I, I suppose because the iPhone is maybe the greatest productivity vacuum, but also tool for productivity. This is just a really incredible history of the whole creation of the iPhone from the software, the hardware, the teams that built it, the people behind it, how it was managed and put together. So it just gives you some really great insights in the productivity of some of the best software engineers in the world, some of the best hardware developers in the world, how a big team can bring one unifying idea together and push it through to deadlines, often to deadlines that are ludicrous, like, you know, making all the software for the phone in six months, just crazy stuff like that. But also really interesting things about how they took an idea 30 years old and it, it worked its way to something else and how, I don't know, applying a different outlook to something can change how it turns out. And then the right person being in the right place can make something happen in the way that someone else couldn't. So it's, it's a, I found it super interesting just in, in how people work. It's about a thing that almost all of us use, you know, the smartphone to some degree. And it's really useful on kind of the way people fit into slots to make things happen. So, um, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was kind of for a, a ostensibly quite a boring technology book. I thought it was really gripping. Great. Um, my one is, so uh, working around the personal development industry, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't share, uh, you know, one or two of my favorites uh, for productivity. I think my top choice, and I've already mentioned it in the podcast, uh, in this episode, is Deep Work by Cal Newport. And it's very, very on topic because it is about uh, focus in the age of distraction. And I think he outlines the, he's a computer scientist. He's extremely prolific in terms of he's, he's published a huge amount of papers and, you know, is a very, very productive proof in the pudding in his life. And he kind of shows all the, he, he has some quite aggressive uh, techniques in terms of he, he doesn't even use social media, but um, he has certain things that show that you can, get your he says about deep work and how important it is which is you know he defines in the book but he talks about there are different ways you can do it and some people take themselves out of everything for a couple of weeks to do deep work some people batch it in the day some people do it in you know more piecemeal ways but he talks about the crucial importance of deep work and how to get more of it in your life basically and, and why it's so becoming increasingly important in 
2019 that basically that is going to decide who's effective in the future is basically who can shut themselves off and be more productive so mm. it's a it's a very cool book and it's actually very practical and written from someone with a scientific background so yeah i like it a lot um, so, um my girlfriend just bought it um to get her through the final hurdles of the phd so um yeah good oh, wow. advice. um yeah and the, the little a little companion to that if you're creative is a very short book called the war of art by stephen pressfield which is uh more about it's a bit more mental and inspirational but it's he has this thing called the resistance and basically all creative work is overcoming the resistance and the resistance is what tells you to stop, what tells you to wait, what tells you you're not good enough. And he talks about all these ways uh, you can and have to overcome the resistance to get anything done. So nice. that's a, that's a sweet, cool little book. Cool. Um, I can give you an album. It's, uh, I can make it seem relevant. So it's the album Music from Big Pink by the band, the group who were previously Bob Dylan's backing band. The, the reason I think it's relevant to the theme of, kind of being productive is that, I mean, it certainly predates the age of social media. I think it's 19, maybe 1969, but they all decamped to a huge house in Woodstock and um, just lived the kind of life of the album, really. So it's it's got a lot of music that sort of reflects maybe even period like the American Civil War or um, even the Depression kind of times, but they all, they camped to a big house, they all sort of dressed the same, lived the same way, and were set on making music in a very specific style to them. And I think there's just something about like, finding like-minded people with the same task. And, and they were very drilled in doing something similar and effectively together. They knew what they needed to do to get get the outcome that they wanted to get rather than being clouded by loads of different and conflicting ideas or I don't know, moving to 20 different studios while recording it. It's sort of in one site, very focused. One outcome is the goal and they achieved it. That's kind of how I can make it relevant. But um, on top of that, it's an absolutely fantastic album. One of the great, you know, one of the great albums of the late sixties for sure. Awesome. Um, I have got something a bit more obvious. Um, you mentioned the iPhone, George. Well, I'm giving them today the Steve Jobs soundtrack to go with it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the soundtrack, not performed by Steve Jobs, but based on, based on the Danny Boyle film, Steve Jobs, which I think was uh, unfairly maligned by some, actually, as a film. Um, it's a... Uh, you know, I gave the social network a plug the other week as a soundtrack, but this one is also one that is uh, kind of tech inspired. It's got some kind of very, it's got a few moody pieces, got a few energetic pieces, but it kind of makes you want to sit and be productive, especially of watching that film as well. But it makes you just kind of want to sit at your computer and bash stuff out. So um, Steve Jobs soundtrack. Not in that way. I saw your eyebrows raise when I said bash that out. Uh, poor choice of words, but yeah, no problem. Um, and then my my film recommendation again, bit of a bit of a crowbarring, but it's the uh, it's the Tom Cruise vehicle Edge of Tomorrow, which, <laughs> okay, which I think is one of the best sci-fi films of the last certainly of the last ten years. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, but it's yeah, essentially like Groundhog Day with an alien battle. But it's about a guy who is he's fighting in a war and he has to achieve something at essentially at the end of a day. And he, he tries to do it. He gets killed almost straight away. 
and then the day starts again and he has to make better decisions to get further in the process that he's trying to achieve right so there's some parallel that can be drawn to productivity of sort of learning from your mistakes stripping away what's not working and then applying yourself more effectively um to crowbar it in but as a very enjoyable film i just thought it was great tom cruise like really laughs at himself a lot in it but it's got some amazing action set pieces um it's just it builds the world in about 15 seconds. It's like the most productive world building for sci-fi that I can think of as well. Um, it sort of strips away a lot of baggage and yeah, I, th I thought it was great. And it had a load of problems. I think it's called different things in different countries, right? Like in the U S I think it's called live, die, repeat or kill, repeat, die or something like that. Right. It didn't get a great um, sort of branding exercise. So I don't think as many people who, saw it as should have done but um yeah that's my film recommendation yeah i love that film um you know mildly tenuous link but <laughs> no, not a problem with that uh no problem with that um i have uh so i guess mine are all on the nose this week which is fine um mm. but uh this uh so i'm going for the film damien chazelle's whiplash george haven't you you've um, recommended that i think in every podcast we've done <laughs> No, I haven't. We talked about Damien Chazelle in our film one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I I just, I think it's on the nose, but it's a, a film about dedication. It's a dark film that shows, it, it muddies the waters, George, because it shows the effects of extreme dedication and the levels uh, that Miles Teller's character reaches because of it. And it also shows uh, how obsession can mm, sacrifice your relationships and damage you psychologically and all those kind of things mm. but it's uh you know there's a lot in there but there's kind of about there's kind of a mixed theme about the sacrifices it can take to be great at something and also the darkness of becoming too single-mindedly obsessed with one thing and so i think it's uh it's a nice edgy ambivalent a lesson um, for us all yeah ambivalent link to the theme very nice. Um, I have I have a song as well that I I just went onto my iTunes and typed in the word work, and uh, it's Michael Jackson's "Working Day and Night" off of uh, off the wall. Just a fabulous song. So just yeah. got the word work in it. So exactly that. But why not? Um, all right, let's wrap it up there. People need to go away and <laughs> and do, do their work. Yeah. Um, thanks for joining me, George. Uh, I'll be back i'll be still in la during our next one and uh thanks for joining us cheers guys um yeah lovely stuff thanks very much bye-bye bye-bye